Now, on this podcast, you're going to be hearing me interview an author that uh, wrote about Enriched, about building wealth over time. There are a few things in this interview that I clashed over. Here's the thing, like a lot of these authors, it doesn't take much to write a book these days. I've done it. <laughs> you guys can check it out on, on Amazon and it's an Amazon bestseller. Thank you for those of you guys who dropped on it. The title is The Journey to Simple Passive Cash Flow. And you can check that on Amazon, by the way. But I, I think the things that we were clashing on is this guy was saying you should buy all these properties and pay them all down, which is a very logical strategy for most people. But again, you never want to be like most people because that's typically maybe not the best way of doing things. And I've been trying to distill this down to different thought processes. And, you know, is it debt? Is it more loan to value? If you guys didn't listen to my, some of my rants with this, like loan to value is just some arbitrary number. To me, what it comes down to is to your debt service coverage ratio. What is your monthly payments to, your, to pay the debt service and what is your cash flow? And if you want to go how the professionals do it, the banks do it when they underwrite our deals, they want to see that 1.25, your debt service is $100. They want to see $125 of cash flow coming in so that there's a bit of a margin there. Now, you can artificially create that debt service coverage higher by you know putting more down payment on, which... Do you guys know that's not what sophisticated investors do? They put the least amounts to get that cash flow and that returns as high as they can by keeping that debt service coverage ratio right at that optimal point at around like 1.1, 1.25. I think that's one could argue that you know it's better to be higher, give up some of those returns. So that's where you are as an investor. And personally, I've been on this journey where I was big on tertiary markets, which have higher caps. Now, the problem with higher caps and the reason why they're higher caps is they're not as stable locations to invest in. I probably was one to say that I'll never invest in Hawaii or California because of the low caps and that they don't cash flow. And cash flow is what you need in case of recession to hold on to the asset. But you know, the good thing about those kinds of markets like New York, Chicago, Miami, Hawaii, Seattle, all of California, is that there's very stable places. People want to live there. And you have to look at kind of both sides of the argument there. So the way I'm thinking is you're, as your net worth grows over $5, $10 million, now you start to get away from the tertiary markets for sure and get to more of the secondary and the primary market. Problem with the primary markets overall, which was why I probably still won't invest there at this point in my life and my journey, is because there's just so much competition in those areas. There's so much dumb, unsophisticated money in Hawaii and Seattle and LA where they're just people just buying properties and holding on it to for a legacy that those are the kind of the people that push up the pricing. And that's a second layer to this. So there's a few things to be thinking about. And I think this is where you really need a network. And this is why we tell people, hey, if you're stuck, if you're tired of just dealing with people who just don't understand investing on this level, join the family office Ohana Mastermind Group. Uh, more details on that, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. Now, before we get going into today's interview with this author, I had a question come up. It seems like a lot of investors are worried about interest rates coming out. And I think, yes, it does really impact the numbers if you're a buy, hold, and pray type of investor. And I was a buy, hold, and pray type of investor from 2009 to 2015 when I was just buying these little single family home turnkeys. If you guys want to go download the analyzer at simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer, you can download the spreadsheet and you play around with the numbers, you change the interest rates from 4.5% to 5%, or maybe five and a quarter, you'll see that cash flow drop. 
maybe you're at $300 and it drops to 75 bucks by making that one little move on the spreadsheet. So, and I think most of our investors understand the sensitivity analysis when interest rates do make these bigger jumps. But this is why I've personally gravitated more towards value add type of real estate. As we all know, wealth comes to those who creates value and value is, can be in the form of many things. And, but ultimately the bottom line in real estate and how much net operating income does a property produce or in the business world, increasing your EBITDA. Now, when you are increasing the value add or the, when you're value adding a property, increasing the rents per se, and you're increasing that net operating income, it, it makes that interest rate, that holding cost less of a important factor. To use a extreme case, take like a house flipper. House flipper don't care what he's paying for his debt service. The good ones will they'll be able to cherry pick a lazy investor money at 8%, maybe 10%. Beware if you're one of those people who take on lend money to house flippers and you're getting 15, 20%, you're likely going through a middleman who's selling, you're basically lending your money through a unproven party. That's why you're getting paid so much. But that's a side note. I don't invest in private money notes. I don't invest with people who are less than five, $10 million net worth these days. Just net worth is a level of sophistication, in my opinion, these days for me. But that's just the class of paper that you're buying. So when you have those higher rates of return, even if you're collateralized with the, the house flipping project, it, you know, it doesn't matter. But I digress. So getting back to my point, these house flippers, they really don't care what they pay for their cost of 10%, 20% doesn't matter because they're buying a property, say for 300, you're putting a hundred grand in and they're flipping it for five, 600, maybe even more. So that holding cost is maybe on the scale of 10, 20, $30,000 if in that six month project per se. So that's an extreme case. And when you're holding on to a property for one to five years, that interest doesn't really it, yes, it piles up and it's part of, you can definitely see it in your monthly P&Ls, but if you're value adding that piece of property, whether that's a home flip in that house flippers case where they're value adding at 200 grand, you can see how that greatly trumps that holding cost, maybe even the tenfold. Now, I like the approach of going into stabilized assets where there's existing cash flow, you know, light to moderate value add, you know, nothing crazy. Definitely. I would be on this, you know, less on the side of the spectrum of that house flipper where they're going after huge amounts of value add and they could care less about the interest rates. Still, I'm not to that extreme, but still this, my point is that the interest rates don't really matter as much when you're doing value add. Now, if you don't trust me, go look at how much money is built up through the retained equity the net operating income divided by the cap rate in the beginning of the project and the presumed cap net operating income at the end of the project divided by the prevailing cap rate and the difference of the money made and then see how much is a debt service comparison to that. And I think what you'll see in most value add projects is the carrying costs or the interest costs. Sure, it's hurting your monthly P&Ls, your cash flows, but it is a very small relation to the bigger gain. I would say these days, even a lot of light value add projects, the majority of the money, let's just call it two thirds is coming from the retained equity to build up the value add pop at the end, as opposed to the cash flow. I think back in the day, maybe like 2015, I was seeing deals like in Memphis, which are tertiary markets that I wouldn't want to invest in, there's garbage areas, but they have high cash flow and really not as much value add in those type of projects because the locations suck. Let's just call it that. 
in those cases, you would see deals where maybe half of the returns were coming through cash flow or maybe a little bit more and the smaller portion, still a large portion is coming through retained equity through the years. But I think that's why some investors who haven't caught on to this concept, they feel like you know, these investors are being a little cavalier. They're still doing stuff in the face of you know, all these interest rates. But when you really like look at the numbers again, what is the retained equity portion versus the cash flow portion? You start to realize, yeah, who cares about paying a little bit more on the interest payments because that's nothing compared to the end goal. Of, unfortunately, you have to wait maybe several years to realize that for newer investors, lower net worth investors, they may not feel comfortable with it. But as we always tell investors, you need to start acting like an accredited investor and more, which is more of a long-term horizon. Accredited investors don't really care what's happening on a monthly, quarterly, or even annual basis. They look at things more on a two, three-year time horizon or three to five years. So they zoom out. And when you look on that side, when you're looking from those lens, now you're looking at more, they care more about what is their equity, how is their net worth growing over time, as opposed to are they getting their monthly cash flow so they can pay their bills. Because affluent people, wealthy people, accredited plus investors, they got their bills taken care of. They've got that cash flow already. They've got that base. So their primary concern is, of course, keeping their money, which is why they invest in real estate, because it holds its value and it goes up with the pace of inflation. But they like it because they can value add and they can realize these huge whacks of big gains, but they got to wait for it. But I think that's the difference between the less sophisticated investors who really enjoy getting those monthly paychecks from the rent checks from their tenants and all that type of stuff to more of a sophisticated investor who is able to zoom out, be a little detached, but really compare the two investment strategies on a longer time horizon. But yeah, you know, I'm pretty confident interest rates will come up a little bit more, but I think things will subside, and which is why we're taking a little bit of a break. And especially because we're seeing a lot of newbies getting into like real estate and investments and apartments. And, you know, like the other day I saw like a deal going up for like 120,000 a unit. And the pitch deck was saying they're, they're going to value add it to get it to 200,000. I'm like, dude, that's not going to happen. And that's the kind of the stuff that's happening all the time. Makes me think, well, maybe the kind of the, the door has closed or to just operate what we got. But then again, like you always got to do something. And I think that's the mistake is to, you know, especially coming from new investors who haven't done jack or at, at any point is they're always looking for that excuse not to do anything. And I think that's the one thing that inflation has done is it's really illustrated to a lot of folks, myself included, that you just can't stick your money in the bank account doing nothing. Now, the, the next level up is putting it into an infinite banking plan, making 5% tax-free. I think that's better than nothing. And I think if somebody is pretty conservative, I think that's the next great option. If you don't know what infinite banking is, check out our free, I think it's like a three-hour e-course at simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking. You got to sign up to get access to that e-course. But there's a little info page for you guys to read up on the concept. But enjoy the show, guys. And if you guys have any other questions, please submit it over. And we'll see you next time. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Today we have the author of Enrich, Todd Miller. We're talking about various topics surrounding wealth, time, money, and, and meaning. But Todd, why don't you quickly go over your uh, step journey towards financial independence from the beginning? 
Hi, Lane. Sure. Happy to do that. And it's really a pleasure for me to be a part of this community and to be here with you this afternoon. By professional background, I am an entertainment executive. I've worked uh, for and in Hollywood for half of my life. And my career rocked. And I actually did not realize the importance of creating and accelerating financial security until years into the career, when I had successfully reached the proverbial corner office and was miserable, and I was handicapped by my financial insecurity. And that's when I recognized that financial security is foundational, and most people think of it as the endpoint, as the ultimate prize for a long and perhaps even punishingly professional path. And to me, it's the starting point. And the sooner a professional can accelerate financial security, uh, the more and the, the more quicker and better that one can scaffold a life of meaning and importance and relevance and enrichment, which is ultimately where everyone wants to be. I retired about two years ago and don't look back. What is it that you can look back that kind of pushed you over the edge and pissed you off or what was that thing? People always have that thing that they can point to. I think we have to back up. And I've been obsessed with the work-life equation and how to maximize that equation really for 25 decades. And I would say that my whole journey with optimizing work and life, that began in my final semester at Columbia Business School when I was flabbergasted how Many of my brilliant classmates seem to be making incredibly foolish and short-term career decisions based on, a, based on the size of a signing bonus. In other words, choosing company A over company B because company A gives a couple more thousand dollars up, up front. And that really puzzled me. You know, that was widespread behavior at the time. And I thought, can we be bought so easily? Am I missing something in this? And... The, the deeper I progressed in my career with the Hollywood studio, I guess I was fortunate to have a series of events which caused me to be hyper-aggressive about getting work and life to work together. And I quickly figured out the work-life balance thing. And my life rocked, my career rocked, and everything was going well until my priorities changed. My company also changed, and I just found that the higher I climbed on the corporate ladder, uh, on the corporate ladder, just the more distant I felt from all the things that attracted me to the business and to the industry and to the role. I guess for me, the pivotal moment was I was hoping to get fired and to receive a parachute. Yeah. So where did this idea come from? Why did you want to get fired? I was miserable and I no longer enjoyed my work, but yet I was addicted to the paycheck. What was worse, the people or the, the job, the work that you did? I would say it was the culture because the, the politics. Okay. So and what exactly, trying to peel back the onion here, trying to get some emotion so, so, and get, not get high level. Like where we are. Yeah. Now. Look, 
the higher you go, really, the less exposed you are to the actual business. And I found that I was spending most of my day, every day, on a lot of nonsense internal issues. Most of it were political issues, just as such as territorial control. Hey, this is my responsibility or different. In Hollywood, there are many ambitious executives. Everyone's trying to grab a piece of the pie from someone else and jump over other people. And just a lot of the days were spent in corporate, in basically survival mode and trying to take down someone else and just really just trying to score points internally, as opposed to actually advancing the business. And look, the situation that I am describing in a particular Hollywood context, it's relatable to many industries in a corporate America, whether it's on Silicon Valley or Wall Street, that at some point, and particularly at more senior positions, the political dynamics tend to outweigh and overshadow the real business of the business. And that was what I found myself in. But I found that the company made decisions not based on meritocracy, but really because someone shines someone's shoes. And I was just, I became disillusioned with that situation. And that led, increasingly, that just led to a disconnect between what I wanted and the reality of this job. But I couldn't walk away from the job because I benefited from a very high, high paycheck and I have mouths to feed and a family to support. And so the reality of having to grin and bear it, so to speak, that really, it really tended to overshadow everything else. And as much as I had worked on work-life balance, because I did not have this financial security, I was not in a happy place. And so I was expecting, hoping to be fired and look forward to the occasion. A kid looks forward to Christmas. Morning. And rather than that happen, it was business as usual and more the same. When I, and I remember this, was, it never rains in Southern California, but on this particular day in Los Angeles, it was a downpour. And I left the studio around 6 p.m. I you know, got in my car. Um, driving to my hotel, I called my father and said, I didn't get fired, but I was just explosive. And that's really, it's a very mentally unhealthy place and unhappy place to be in. And after I basically extricated myself from that very toxic situation, I then made accelerating financial security a primary, a primary and was able to fast track that in a relatively short amount of time. And that changes everything. And so the point I'm trying to make to you and to this audience is that often many professionals subscribe to the trappings of professional su success and career aligning. And it's often don't recognize the importance of creating financial security as quickly as possible because there's this illusion sometimes correctly, sometimes falsely, that one has the security of a great and well-paying, but tying financial security to job security is a very risky business, and particularly so for very successful professionals. And so the biggest insight that I've learned is to always, 
not depend upon any other organization for my livelihood. So you didn't get fired. So what kind of transpired? Because um, eventually you mentioned you got to FI in about five years. How did you, you make the passing? Yeah. So I, it took, it took several weeks after that, that, that horrible experience in Los Angeles for me to extricate myself from the company. But I did. I went on sabbatical, which was just a, an incredible experience and basically reset myself reset my my career my aspirations joined another company as chief executive and began a second professional life in a business and in an industry that i truly enjoyed at the time and so as soon as i was on that second career i then prioritized building financial security through real estate and while all this was transpiring I was living and working in Hong Kong, yet I managed to build house by house, a modest single family real estate portfolio in the United States. And, and so I took many trips to the US. Some of these were family trips and many people go to Disneyland. Well, the Millers went to California and we went house hunting. We left with a souvenir or two of a house under contract on business trips to Los Angeles. I wouldn't leave LA until had a house under contract. And so trip by trip, uh, year by year, I was able to, to, to establish this portfolio of uh, single family homes that really created the foundation for me to achieve FI and to no longer have to work in order to, to support my family. I yeah, got so more sophisticated as I got along, but certainly the pivotal point was building that, that property port portfolio by remote con control from Hong Kong. How many assets, average rents, average purchase price, a little bit? Did you do any rehab or anything like that? No. So I very much focus on... Oh, well, let me take a step back. I always believe in focusing on where you want to end up and then working back to the... And generally, whether it's a financial goal, whether it's a personal goal or a career goal, I think that's a good process to adapt. And so my objective in building this property portfolio is to build layers and layers of passive cash flow. And I, I put a premium on passivity, which means that I want this experience to be as hassle-free as possible. And as a result of that, I focused on the ideal demographic that I wanted to rent to. And then I asked myself, what kind of property would appeal to that demographic? And as a result of that thought process, I focus on middle to upper middle class single family homes. And depending upon where you are in the country, that means different things in different places. But I started originally in Southern California and, and I completely outsource everything with respect to the actual running of these homes. Again, my goal is high passivity. And what was the I, and what were the rents being brought in on average? Yeah. So starting in Southern California, the purchase prices ranged 
because I did this over a number of years, from $330,000 ultimately to about $430,000. And the rents associated with that range from 2200 or so to, to currently about 2600 when so it's, and I have a number of properties that fall within that range. In terms of the cash on cash yield, it has been less spectacular than other parts of the country where I now invest, but the appreciation on those homes in California, particularly at the timing of the purchase, that's been quite good. And so once I purchased a number of homes in California, I felt that doing that, building that portfolio in California had run its course. And so I then started building a secondary portfolio in Kentucky. How many houses did you get in California before you moved on? So I capped at four. And then, and, and right now- And I you're have, doing what, 80% on the value debt? No, I am, I have a toxic relationship to debt and we can talk about that, but I, I am all like- Okay, so you're 100% cash in those yes. types of things. Yeah, let's, also, I mean, let's talk about it. Most times I'll, I like to use as much debt as I can, as much as I cash flow. But yeah, walk me through the, the thought process. Wouldn't you be able to take, you had maybe about a $400,000, five houses. How much equity was there of two mil? Two, two in California. Yeah. So the whole goal, again, you have to think what the outcome is, what the desired outcome is. And for me, it was important to build financial security. And so let's talk what that means. Most people think that financial security is a number, a goal, but actually financial security is an emotional state. It's how you think about money. And for me, I do not want to have to or have any anxieties about, about owing something to a third party. And so part of what enables me to sleep well at night is to know that I have zero debt and that helps me sleep well at night. And that is a personal choice. But I went to business school and I completely understand the financial benefits of leverage, which is why I outsource my leverage. So I try to harness the benefits of leverage without that being on my books. And so in addition to these single family homes, I also invest in private placements, both equity and debt, as well as some closed in funds. And all three of those financial categories, they utilize debt. And if I'm doing a PE investment, I would much rather prefer that the sponsor get institutional rates and get the benefit of debt and have that debt on their books rather than on my books. And so through these private equity, private debt, and closed-in fund investments, I outsource this leverage. And so that's my way of trying to harness some of the benefits of leverage without compromising ultimately my peace of mind, which ultimately affects my financial security. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what a lot of our community does. Most of our credit investors are getting rid of their rental properties, going in private placements and syndications where it goes in the key principal name. What are your thoughts on another reason why they do that so they don't get dead in their own name, but it's also the liability? Because right now, even if it's an LLC, 
your pro- everybody knows right where to sue you. They can look it up and they know exactly where your equity is and how much you have. What is your kind of your thought process on yeah. that side? Yeah. yeah. And so it's important to basically wrap these assets into a couple protective layers. And so one would be some kind of corporate entity. And legally, that's hard to puncture, but not impossible. And then on top of that, to get some umbrella insurance at a pretty high level. And so those are the two ways that I've been able to do that to try to insulate my, myself. Again, going back to that demographic point that I was making, because I focus on middle to upper middle class homes, that also attracts a certain kind of demographic that hopefully mitigates some potential litigation risk because- I would respectfully disagree. That's is why we invest in workforce housing. These, it's not in the state of California, which is the litigation state capital of the country, but also a lot of our tenants, they just are not, they just can't muster a lawsuit. And a lot of times the lawsuit, it's whoever can power it and pay most for legal fees. Yeah, yeah. So I, I look, I have great tenants. I'm a good landlord. Most of my tenants have been with me for very long stretches of time. All of my properties are very professionally managed. The management companies proactively make sure that the properties are in good order and I invest in the property. And ultimately, you know, I believe that if you, if you try to conduct yourself in the right way, ultimately that's the best that you can do. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. But the rental property is just one small part of the portfolio. Correct. You mentioned like the private placements mm-hmm. to what would you say would be the asset allocation mix between the direct owner to, I like your terminology, the outsource kind of debt or the outsource asset management? I, I, so I truly put a premium on passivity and I, belong, I believe in relying on professionals who have much more specialized expertise than I have, whether that be tax professionals or whether that be property management professionals, insurance specialists. And I essentially started building these single families. And after amassing about a dozen single family homes, I basically hit a threshold where I said, you know, where I asked myself, do I want to make this bigger? And I could very much make it bigger and I could double the number of doors, direct doors that I have, but I don't want to create another job. I left a very high paying job. And so why? (laughs) I sold them all for, let's hear it. (laughs) Why create that? But having said that, I, I, I like, and maybe it's my Asian background where people really prize and respect physical real estate. That's why I keep the single family homes as part of the portfolio. And I would say that part of the portfolio in terms of my income, because that's really how I measure things, accounts for about 40% of my, but on top of that, I then layer it with private equity, private debt, and I have a very strong position in closed-end funds. And so overall, about two-thirds of my portfolio 
is positioned and weighted toward real estate, but I also do invest, and these are primarily in muni bond funds, and that is for liquidity and for diversification, just because so much of my portfolio is otherwise committed through long-term real estate investments, whether that's private placement or direct. So the, the rental properties is just a, a bit of a tip of the iceberg in a way. I'm assuming, do you ever look to sell any of them or prune, the, prune that part of the portfolio a little bit? I do. In fact, I'm in the process of doing of early staging one sale now. I am pruning the California properties for some of the reasons that you've mentioned before. The properties have appreciated extremely well. But, on a, but they're just not cash flowing relative to other productive uses for, for that value right. that is con- contained. Yeah. You've got like a portfolio in Kentucky, as you mentioned. Are you thinking yes. about making it more into California properties or no. different geographic locations? So I very much believe that one should try to have a little bit of specialization. And early on, when I was building my portfolio, I actually thought I'll buy a place in LA, I'll buy a place in Seattle. And basically every market of the day, I thought, let me buy a place. But I realized that's crazy. And for a small retail individual investor, it just, it doesn't make sense. I very much believe in creating some modest economies of scale, which is why for the direct investments, I focused on those two geographies and on nurturing an ecosystem of trusted experts that I can completely rely on, rely on to manage that. And so I am in the process of, and this is a multi-year process, of exiting my California exposures and I don't think I'm going to add any more to Kentucky because currently in terms of a diversification perspective, I'm concerned about concentration risk. And so I'm trying to figure out as we speak what to do, where to basically direct that money. And and I haven't conclusively landed on, on, on that. Last year, and by remote control, because I was in lockdown in Thailand, I did a 1031 from California, and I bought sight and scene, three investment homes, and I did that because I had this reliable network of, of professionals whom I've worked with now for a number of years, that they could be the boots on the ground, and that enabled me to do that 1031 and basically convert one California home into three Kentucky properties. And that's the way the math works. So you're still on the fence of you're going to sell some of the California rentals one by one very slowly, but you haven't decided yet if it's going to go back into more California properties or a different tertiary market or secondary market. It definitely will not be recycled into California. So ultimately, I will exit California. Any couple markets you're thinking of? Yeah. So I'm looking at Birmingham. I'm actually looking at D.C., which is where I am at the moment. But I am also looking at DSTs at Delaware Statutory Trust, as well as Opportunity Zones, as an alternative to buying direct properties. And so I am in a diligence process on all those options. 
So this is for folks listening, like DC is definitely a primary market like California with very low rent to value ratios, lower cap rates. For Todd, this is a very different situation, right? He's in end game scenarios, not really in growth. But that's why you invest for low caps, for security and capital preservation in those types of markets. I would say, Todd, if, if you were going to do that in DC and buy these higher end homes, wouldn't it be a bad idea to do a cost seg before 2022, before a lot of lock in those losses, just bank it on an 82, 84 form? For, but I know it seems like you're still undecided whether you're going to go the lower cap rate type of market or a Birmingham. I am. And I have a few months where I have uh, runway for yeah. me to figure this. Yeah. I've got a couple of properties in Birmingham. I'm sure love to unload if you'd like to buy them. <laughs> yeah. So Birmingham was one of the markets that I originally bought rental properties, but I'm all in private placements, syndications that mostly I operate at this point. Great. These are like the conversations, pruning your portfolios. I want to be siphoning it around a little bit, never stay stagnant, but never make wholesale changes. I, one year I sold two properties in Seattle, bought nine out of state. That's a little wholesale change right there. Line change if you hockey fans out there. But these are the, what Todd is doing is very prudent and it, different ways to do it, right? It's very, look, it's very incremental. It's cautious, it's defensive, but it works. And again, I think every investor has to ask, do I want to build a business or do I want to build financial security? And those are two different things. And depending upon how you answer that will then dictate how you scale and structure your investments. So again, Todd is the author of Enrich. Maybe what are like a couple of big takeaways from the book, just to give people a little teaser and talk? Sure. So Enrich is about creating wealth in time, money, and meaning. And because I've been obsessed with this work-life equation for a quarter century. Through my research, I identified three very common and pressing goals, which tend to just sap the life out of life for professionals. And these three core challenges are financial insecurity, time poverty, and a disconnect in priorities. And so we've discussed about financial insecurity and how a paycheck and job security does not create financial security. In terms of time poverty, this is a pervasive problem among professionals. Ernst & Young says that insufficient time accounts for four of the five biggest hurdles that professionals face. And so the third core challenge is this perpetual disconnect between how professionals wish that they could spend their day versus how they actually spend their day. And there's this demoralizing gap between what we wish that we could be doing and you know, how we actually live our days. And that explains the deep funk that I was in when I was working at that Hollywood studio and I was demoralized when I didn't get fired because just how I was spending my days didn't relate to what was important to me at that time. And so with those three core challenges, what I encourage readers of this book to do is to create optionality so that work becomes a choice and not an obligation, and to take control of their lives through intentionality, which is- Maybe can you give an example? Of intentionality? 
Right, right. Yes. It's really about being deliberate and purposeful in how you spend your time. And so a great example is, and what I encourage every listener of this podcast to do, is to wake up in the morning and ask yourself, what will make today a great day? Not a good day, not another Wednesday day, but what will make today a great day? And to, to consider that question on our personal dimension, on a professional dimension, and on a financial dimension, and then with deliberateness to go about and to accomplish whatever it is that you identified that will make this day a great day. That's what it means to live intentionally. And so goals and goal setting and goal achievement, they, they actually occupy about a third of my, and I dive deeply into the science of goal setting and goal achievement because it's so important. But it's especially important at this moment in time to take control because one of the, one of the biggest facets of this pandemic has been a perceived loss of control where events and situations just tend to undermine and supersede everything. And at an individual level, particularly in lockdown, we have little control. And so at a time when the world seems out of control, it's mighty important to take control where we can in our lives. And that is the power of intentionality. So maybe just give us some examples of you've seen people make, because I think people understand so liberally that, yeah, I got to create my life how I want it today. This is the ideal. But the problem I think people run into is myself included at some point, we're just running on autopilot and we just lack the imagination to what those things are, right? Like there's a governor on a lot of us. Yes. Um, yes. I call that the default setting. And most of us are not aware of that default setting. It sets usually around college time when we're in college. And when we're in college, we're directed toward careers. And once we start climbing the ladder, we then spend much effort to climb as fast and as high as we can without ever surveying whether or not the ladder leans against the right wall. And part of this default setting is that we implicitly subscribe to a 40-year ultra marathon to create some degree of financial of financial freedom. In other words, we embark upon our careers in our 20s and we hope to exit, if we're lucky, sometime in our 60s. And then we think we'll be able to live the life that we wish we could have been living all along. How crazy is that? But that is the default setting for which most people unconsciously operate. And so the first step is to recognize the default setting and to recognize that often the juice doesn't justify the squeeze and then to reject that default setting. But to be able to reject the default setting, you need to have something aspiring, something aspirational to work to. And that's where the notion of life planning, 
and goal setting and goal achievement come into play. Let me give you a great example. So I was in my, I was in my mid twenties, a few years out of business school. My life was rocking. My career was rocking. I had just paid off all my student loans and I had just spent this amazing three week holiday in Africa with my family and life, life was almost perfect. And I was headed back home after this amazing vacation with my family. And I was at the Dubai for three o'clock in the morning, about to board a flight back to the real world. And I asked myself though, do I just go back to more of the same or do I go back with some intention and some purpose? Because I just felt directionless. And so on a scratch piece of paper on the floor of the airport, I scribbled out very long-term aspirations that I had. And once I got back into the office a few days later, I re-looked at that scratch piece of paper, made a couple edits, and those aspirations became uh, the first iteration of a life plan. And I've enlarged and developed this life planning system over a number of years, but it's now become my central operating system. And the whole process about making the time to understand what you really value, to understand what your priorities are, and then to identify what makes an enriched and meaningful life for you. Just going through that thought process and articulating a few key aspirations, that in itself is a very powerful process. And by the notion of laying out what one's biggest priorities are in life and then directing your focus toward those priorities, that really is the essence of living intentionally and creating this life of time, money, and meaning, which we all aspire. What observation there, you got out of your normal setting, right? You were in vacation, you were able to get out of your default setting, got, gave you that traction to do that little exercise. Yes, but I think more and more importantly, until that moment, my goals had been career, get rid of all my student debt. And I had kind of, and those were modest goals, but I had knocked them all off. And without something larger for me to work toward to, it was that feeling of directionlessness. And yes, getting out of my comfort zone was a great catalyst to recognize. But I think that we all need to know what we're working toward. Because to paraphrase Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you just might not get there. But the, the Trisha Cat, Trisha Cat said something similar, right? If you don't know where you're going, I can't tell you where you're going, where you are, or something like yeah. that. Cool. Yeah, folks want to check out the, the book Enrich is the title by Todd Miller website enrich101.com. But any parting words, Todd? Look, I think that we as investors, we as a nation have been through a traumatic experience over the past year and a half. And the parting concept that I would like to leave for your audience is, do we return to normal or do we aspire to something richer and better? And I would encourage everybody to begin to incorporate the practice of intentionality in their daily lives 
so that we can go as individuals and as a community to a richer and better normal. Well said. Yeah. I think most people listening, you guys have already realized that there's something might be better out there. If not, you wouldn't have Googled Simple Plastic Cash Flow. You wouldn't have downloaded a podcast. So I think a lot of you guys are heading in the right direction, but keep going on that momentum. Pick up Todd's book, Enrich. Get Like Todd says, you got to find something that pulls you, but you got to figure out what the heck that is. Do the exercises. I also have, um, you guys go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash goals. There's a little worksheet there that you guys can download. And I think we did this in 2019 and 2020. I did a uh, video tutorial. You guys can Google that on the website. I will also say that in the book that I include 11 exercises that relate to different aspects of many of the themes that we have discussed. But that really this book enrich goal setting, goal achievement is such an important process to actually fulfilling and creating the life that we all aspire to. Everybody, thanks for listening, guys. You can only take this stuff so far on podcast land and books. Join the community, simplepassacastle.com slash club. Hope to see you guys out in real person one of these days. And um, if you haven't yet, connect with me. Shoot me an email, lane at simplepassacastle.com. Book your onboarding call. And we'll see you guys next week. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.